What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. This is your friendly neighborhood town strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. You know why no one wants to work with you today? It's probably because you've got no idea what good leadership looks like. And if hearing that sets you off running for the nearest Jack Welch book, this is the conversation that you need to be paying attention to. So you've got to be authentic and vulnerable to connect with your team, and you've got to have a servant's mindset. That's the position that Daniel Bird makes and he's a people leader who's on a mission to help leaders connect with their most authentic selves, learn how to bravely use their experiences and their vulnerability to connect with their teams and deliver great work while developing meaningful career and personal growth. He's got over 15 years of people leadership experience across the world in the U.S. and EMEA in Australia. And he's worked with growth-driven businesses who care about their people and are passionate about overcoming significant challenges. He's had the opportunity to apply core leadership principles in the development and leadership of high-performing client services team, management of exponential business growth, and delivery of internal service teams across multiple categories. He's currently the VP of People and Culture at GumGum. Daniel Byrd, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me here, Jim. I'm excited to be part of it. This is going to be a good conversation. And I think in the list of firsts, I think you're the first Aussie we've had on the show. And this is the first time that I've opened the show with a slam on Jack Welsh. So there's two firsts that we've covered in the show. So welcome aboard. I know that there's a lot more to you than the two sentences or three sentences maybe that I explained in the bio. So what I'd like to do is take some time now and have you share with the listeners some things that we left out, some things that are going to be important for them to know about you that's going to inform this conversation. Yes. Thanks so much for setting that up. I think, first of all, I, I started university thinking I was going to go and study accounting and finance and shifted partway through that degree over to human resource management, mostly as a process of elimination, looking at all of the different majors. I, I knew I didn't want to do accounting, but wasn't terribly sure what I wanted to do next. And, and that led me into quite an exciting career in human resource management. But interestingly, I've kept some of the flavor of that accounting degree in, in through my career. And you, you did mention it quickly, but I, I did very intentionally move out of HR for a period of time into operational business leadership after I was convicted one morning at a breakfast seminar by a senior HR leader in Australia who made the comment that very few HR practitioners actually ever go in and run a business or run a team or own a, a P&L. And I think there was a survey of HR folks, and I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but the abundance of HR professionals who thought it was valuable in their career to actually go and spend some time in line management 
was very low. I think it was something like 10 to 15% of HR professionals thought it was a worthwhile thing to do. And she made a very compelling case that morning. I went off and did that. And I'm really excited and glad that I did. I think it has helped me tremendously in working with leaders on making good decisions in the people space. How did that experience working on the business side of an organization or an enterprise shape your people strategy going forward? I think one of the things you learn when you step into the role of business leadership is uh, everything you're taught is the science of leadership in HR, that there are technical things that are good to know, you know, why we want to have one-on-ones, why we should issue performance warnings when things are going wrong, things that all of us are advising leaders to do every day. But actually there's an art to leadership as well that after you've issued that performance warning, you have to show up the next day and work with that individual. And that has to be productive. And they've got to believe that you're on their side and that you want them to win, despite the fact you've just issued them a performance warning and you've written that down in a formalized way. Things like, can you be friends with the folks that report to you? Um, how does that impact the, the feelings of others on the team who perhaps aren't perceived to be personal friends of yours? How do you manage those relationships um, and the dynamic within that leadership function? And so uh, what that's done as I've moved back into HR has provided a much more nuanced uh, approach to people issues, but also to the advice that I provide um, to leaders around how to manage complex people issues. I'm, I'm no longer holding the, uh, the technical science textbook on how leadership should work. And I'm much more comfortable sitting with leaders in the space of the art of leadership as well. One of the things that caught my attention about what you just said was your comment about PIP and what you do the day after. What's your advice to leaders who want to manage that relationship and navigate it effectively the day after delivering a PIP? Yeah, it, it usually starts well before the PIP is issued, is my answer to that. And it's about how you set that relationship up. Now, there are wonderful thought leaders in this space. Kim Scott, who wrote a, a great book called Radical Candor, and Brene Brown, who's actually wrote a, a number of different books now on, on leadership and how that can translate to the workplace around vulnerability, is that often the reason leaders don't do the performance improvement plan or the warning is because despite being in a position of power, they've not done the groundwork to build trust in that relationship with that employee. So that employee isn't doubting for a second that despite you writing down clear performance expectation, that you're ultimately on their side and you want them to win and you want them to be here. And so if you can do a lot more of the legwork when someone starts in your team to build that personal relationship, to be vulnerable with them, to build connection, that when it comes time to talk to them about a performance improvement plan, they're more likely to be open to that conversation and more likely to see that with the intention that you are bringing to that conversation than it being some scary formal process that you've initiated with HR. The through line that I pick up from what you're saying is PIPs, just like whatever is on your annual review, should never be a surprise. If that's a surprise, you failed as a leader in the eyes of the employees. That's a really good lesson early in the conversation. So let's dive into what we're going to talk about. When you look at your current role, what's the accomplishment that you're most proud of? In the short while that I've been at GumGum, about, about four years, we've acquired two international businesses, one in EMEA, one in Europe, and, and another one in Australia. And I've been able to work with leaders uh, across both of those acquisitions and within GumGum to integrate those organizations into the broader GumGum 
at the same time, Gumgum's trying to be a more mature organization and have more mature systems and process that allow us to integrate. Uh, because when you go from a small, nimble startup into a, a multinational company, those things aren't automatically there and we don't have buy-in and agreement from everyone to start with. When you make that transition going from small, nimble startup to international player that's grown through a combination of organic and acquisition-based growth, how did you pull that off from an integration perspective across all of those geographies when your DNA is probably still pretty much a startup guy? Actually, both of the acquisitions happened relatively late in the pandemic. For the most part, when the transactions occurred, we were all still locked at home and, and on Zoom calls all day long. But as soon as possible, getting on a plane and going to meet people face to face and starting from a position of understanding their point of view and understanding their perspective, and also coming humble enough to know that it is possible that the businesses you've acquired, perhaps working more efficiently or doing things differently to, to your company. And then knowing that the beauty of not having everything set up and not being super bureaucratic and pro-established is that you can be nimble, is that you can take the best parts from both organizations and start to build and integrate that together into a best case scenario for the new integrated organization. Not that you don't have enough on your plate right now, but when you think about 2024 and 2025, what are those big moonshots that you have on your radar that you want to knock off in the midst of this continuing integration process that you're going through. Bringing together the culture work that we're doing um, under a program called Connect It Gum Gum, we think that's getting to a mature place and having a terrific impact on the team. Our next real focus in the next couple of years will be really around leadership development, in particular frontline leaders and the impact that they have on the day-to-day -day experience of team members around the world. And so really investing internally with our team, with my team, on how we can make a difference there for leaders. In most cases, they have a lot of the tools that leaders will need to be effective leaders. We haven't probably done as well of a, uh, as we could have done in making sure they know how to use them and how to use them well. So I think that would be the thing. If we could really make a difference there, then we know we'd make a, a big difference for the organization. Why the emphasis on first-time leaders? What we know is that most people who get promoted into first-time leadership roles are being promoted because they're really good at their job. They know the answers to the challenges that team's likely to face. And the natural inclination is to answer those questions. It's when people come to them with problems um, or they want to speak to them about something, then, then they know the answer. And the natural inclination is, I'm here, I'm smart. That's why they put me in this job. Let me answer it. And what we know from the art and science of leadership is that to create that coaching mentality and create that space for that person to truly thrive and grow actually requires a skill that, that needs to be trained and developed. And so we think that those folks are leading the most number of people at our company. And so we think we can have the greatest impact by sitting with them and developing those skills. And they've told us over and over again that they're very hungry for it. So you said something really interesting there, especially when it comes to the emphasis on first-time leaders. When we're talking about why so many organizations are struggling with finding people that want to work for them or just overall engagement on the team, people being dialed in at the team level. How is that related to the level of effort 
that you spend on developing your first time managers to be effective? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Actually, I, I was um, when I was in my operational role managing a group of folks, I, I managed uh, a group of leaders who were all going out and managing people. And uh, I was visiting one of our sites, so not where I would come to work and sit every day, but in another state of Australia. I asked one of the team members, how's it going today? Tell me, what does a, what does a good day for you look like? And his response to me surprised me, but was also relatively profound for me, which was, I'm having a good day when you're having a good day. And he said, and I, I laughed with him. I was like, oh, that's a good answer. And he said, no, I mean that. Even though you're another state away, even though there's a reporting line in between us, I know whether you're having a good day in Sydney or not. And I feel that right here in my day to day through the interactions that I have with the people in the team. And that for me was super interesting because I like to study human behavior and because primarily my work is in, in human resources around the impact that a leader can have on team members' days that may not even report to them, that kind of sits further down in the organization. And so that really brought it home for me. And I work with a career coach I have for most of my career who's terrific. And we talked a lot about that in terms of how can you have a positive impact on team members so that as many people as possible having a good day within your team and a productive day in your team. Uh, that led me to some other work and, and some other insights around how as a leader, you can start to have a productive impact and a positive impact on the team members that report to you and to their teams as well. And one of the things that I spoke about with my career coach was actually an article written by Peter Drucker, I think, around effective executive. And through their research, they found that really effective executives, the ones that kind of sit in that kind of top quartile of performers. The thing that they do that the others don't is to focus on one thing at a time strategically. Of course, tactically, day to day when you're running the business, you're going to have to put out fires and answer questions and do things. But in terms of headspace for strategic movement and strategic direction, picking one thing at a time that filters down through your team, the team all know that the thing we're working on and that's the thing we're moving towards. And to most leaders that creates a sense of anxiety because they have 15 things that they need to do. But the truth is we have 15 things to do every year and we're probably not that effective at getting them done. And if you get one thing a month strategically to really make ground on and focus on and execute on, so at the end of the year, you would have 12 things really well executed that you can be really proud of. And for most leaders, they would kill for a year like that. Wow, it's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community, get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. And now back to the show. We're taking the HR Impact Show on the road. As a loyal listener to the HR Impact Show, we'd like to invite you to join us live at the 2024 Transform Conference at the Wynn Resort in Las Vegas from March 11th through the 13th. Transform brings together people-driven leaders, investors, and innovators across industries and backgrounds with a shared passion for people innovation and transforming the world of work. The 2024 Transform Conference is going to be the best yet. Here's what you can expect. Innovative showcases, probing conversations, hands-on learning experiences, 300 plus speakers, and more. Join us and let's shape the future world of work together. 
I want to draw out your opinion on one particular aspect in it. And you mentioned it earlier on when your team member said, I'm having a good day when you're having a good day. And mm. it, it locked in a realization for you that the level of impact that you have on the people underneath you, regardless of how separated you are from a geography perspective, how is that disconnected from some of the leadership philosophies that we saw from people like Jack Welch and we see from people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Barry Sternlicht and Tim Gurner. They have a certain viewpoint that seems to be in stark contrast to what you articulated. Where do you think that sort of thinking steers leaders wrong? Another way of asking that is why should we care whether the team members, a few people below us, are having a good day. Does that mean our business is running more efficiently or effectively? And what we know from pretty recent research that I couldn't point to right now, so don't ask me where it comes from, but rings true to me is that our direct manager has as much impact on our mental health as our romantic partner. And so if you don't have psychological safety within your team, it's like being in an abusive relationship romantically. And if you think about the amount of time you spend at work every week and the amount of impact that leader can have on you, if you're going to get the most out of someone, if the contribution they're going to leave in your organization is going to be 100% or more, even more than they expect ever deliver, is that going to happen in an environment where people feel like they're having a bad day over and over again? And the chances are that that is not the case. And there are some things, I love the idea, at least in the Jeff Bezos mentality of it's always day one. I love some of that mentality, but a lot of the traditional thinking on leadership really does ignore this mental health aspect and the psychological safety aspect, which is critical to having employees performing at an elite level. I love how you tied that together. The why should we care is a great question. And linking it to the parallel that you drew between being a crappy leader and how the impact of that is very similar to being in an abusive relationship that really caught my attention. If we're going to move forward with this people-centric approach with a clear eye towards the impact that you as a leader have on your organization, what are the things that you need to be doing intentionally to build that sort of culture. I have a, a new mantra for my team this year, which is structure is enabling. That just because you're a senior leader or somebody that sits at the senior table and you get to decide with full autonomy what you spend your time on and what you execute, as you start to build layers within your organization, there are folks below you that will need that direction, that will need to know where the boundaries on that field are and where they're allowed to play and where they're trying to shoot the goal. And even in very innovative and quickly changing industries like the ad tech industry, people in my team need to know their level of authority, what they're allowed to approve, what they're not allowed to approve, when they should come to me. And that requires some thinking around systems and process and structure, and then having that communicated and then constantly talking about that. And for me, and certainly for this year, building that sense of structure, thinking about how people are working, particularly if they're in a remote environment, they're just sitting there in their house deciding what to do next and what email to reply to and, and what person to go and meet with. They need to have a clear sense of their role and what they're trying to achieve. You just said a dirty word on this conversation, and that's, that's structure. 
And the reason why it's a dirty word for me is I feel like you sold me out because here I'm thinking you're a startup guy. You like being nimble and agile. And now you start talking about structure and I'm like, mm. come on, man. If organizationally you have a culture that's used to operating with that agility and that startup mindset, and now you start putting in structure, how do you bridge the gap so that people are accepting of that shift, which is necessary, but you're going to have people like me who believe in frameworks, hate structure. Yeah, they want to break stuff. I think that there are ways of putting the best way I can describe it is scaffolding in place, which is structure that is clear, but held lightly. If you're in a startup environment, then there's a terrific book called Traction by, by Gino Wickman, which is a t like a terrific book in setting up an out of the box system or structure it says, Hey, you don't need to solve everything, but how are we going to know what the key issues at this organization are for the executive team? How do we know what the scorecard is on how that organization is performing? Green, orange, red. Just are we doing well this month or are we not doing well this month? How do we know what to bring to what meeting and what problems we're going to solve in what meeting? And how are we creating this sense of continuous feedback and continuous improvement so that those meetings are more and more effective? And I've worked with a couple of different leaders in the startup environment with that specific system and with that specific way of operating that does provide some structure in terms of, I'm assuming revenue is a metrics you might want to look at. I'm assuming employee turnover might be. What are the things that point to organizational health? But it doesn't necessarily mean that those things can't change over time, what the targets are or what the metrics are that you can see important to the organization. And so th this is what I would call like light structure. Again, it, it enables the folks below you to know what's important, but does stifle you in a time of innovation or an industry that's trying to move quickly and change. Your point about scaffolding and my, my version of that is framework. I'm a big framework person because it still gives me a box to play in and it's a pretty big box. It's when it goes beyond that, where you're know your role and stay in this narrow band where people like me have big issues. I appreciate you clarifying that. When you look at all of the things that we've been talking about up to those point, how to be a more effective leader, how to, how to be more empowering, how to be aware of the impact that you're having on your team and building the necessary structure that's required for you to scale. What are the things that you encountered that were pitfalls that others who are looking to do the same thing that you've experienced should be watching out for? The first one talks to your previous point, which is it's an evolution, not a revolution. If you go too much structure too quickly, everyone paralyzes and, and freezes up. But there are things in your organization that can just be systemized and set up and can run. Things like expense reimbursement. We shouldn't be working out how that happens and how that works every time someone has a receipt. That should just be set and forget. So there's a bunch of stuff that you can set and forget. And a lot of that is like foundational and hygiene type things that just make it an easier place to work before you start building on top of that. I always say, if you can catch the vision, but be pragmatic about how you get there, what, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So what are the things that you can activate or enable today that take you one step closer towards that organization you want to be, and then take everyone on that journey. Now I work for an advertising company. And so we care deeply about how things look and how they're presented. I was overwhelmed and intimidated when I started just looking at the PowerPoint presentations or deck that they have internally, just the internal meetings, because everything was polished and beautiful. And my PowerPoint skills were nowhere near 
the level that I would thought was going to be required to do well here. But even our people program, we're packaging that, we're polishing that, we're thinking about what the end user is going to be walking away, thinking, feeling, and saying about that thing. And so we're very fortunate enough to be able to work with internal designers as well on our people programs. And that's main, meant that the work that we do, we're incredibly proud of because it is very beautiful as well as incredibly effective and it's well received by the team as well. Daniel, really great conversation. We've covered a lot of the context that and perspective that you're coming from. And I think it's particularly interesting given that you're somebody that's transitioning from start startup environment to an inter international environment through mergers and acquisitions. So that adds a, a really unique bit of nuance into how you lead in, the, in those environments. If somebody is out there listening and wants to get started, how do they even start? What are the things that you would suggest they pay attention to and put into motion right away? From my experience, I think plan at some time in your career to go and lead a team and be in the line. That experience for HR professionals is incredibly helpful. And from where I'm sitting, typically that opportunity will present itself if you work with a business long enough, because I know that can feel a little bit intimidating to soak, but if you're working on a team, you understand how it's operating, you're a business partner to them and a role becomes available, take the opportunity to apply for it and, and go and, and be part of that. Second of all, understand how businesses work from a systems and process perspective, even if you're in a startup understanding the ultimate goal, which for every startup is tremendous growth and either an IPO or an exit at some point is understand what you're trying to get to. And we talked about traction as a framework and it's a terrific one, but it's not the only one. There's, there's lots of them out there and you can become a practitioner and helping leaders facilitate that process for them and themselves. And then getting really clear about your messaging to your team about which way the company is heading and how you're going to package that for them so that it's digestible, so that they can take the general direction away and everything that they're doing. So remembering that structure is enabling for them. And it might mean at the highest level, what is true for us right now? What do we know right now about where we're heading? There's a lot that we probably don't know, and there's probably tons of priorities we want to get to. But what's the thing that we can say right now that we can hold true to? If people want to get in touch with you and continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I'm available on LinkedIn like most people these days and occasionally drop a note on Medium as well on a blog. So the two kind of main ways to get in touch. I appreciate you hanging out with us. When I think about uh, the conversation that we've had, there's a few things that stand out that I, I, I want to highlight. I think one of the things that every leader listening to this show, regardless of what level they're at, needs to be keenly aware of the impact that they have on people that are widely distributed and separated from their immediate sphere of influence. And I think that level of impact is something that should inform how you show up on a day in, day out basis, because like you mentioned early in, in the conversation, people know when you're having a bad day. The other thing that stands out is everybody wants to build a high performing team and everybody wants to build a team where there is trust and vulnerability and all of the things that are hallmarks of great teams. But in order to get there, you have to do the work first. So as a leader, it's important that you put in the time and effort to get that foundation laid so that any of those difficult conversations that you have down the road don't come out of the blue, don't make your people feel like uh, they've been ambushed. 
and you're still operating and showing up in a way that it that it's demonstrated to them that you still want them to win. So those are two big things that stood out in the conversation that I thought is worth highlighting. For everyone that's uh, tuned into this conversation, we appreciate you hanging out. Leave us a review and let us know how the conversation went. If you have additional questions or you want to continue the conversation, reach out to Daniel or I, and then tune in next time where we'll have another great leader sharing with us the game-changing realizations that they had that helped them build high-performing teams. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.